Well, we jumped into our series uh, two weeks ago, introducing the character Saul. Uh, last week, we looked at Galatians and uh, his defense of where he uh, came across his message. He says, I didn't receive it from another person. It's not something that I came up with. I didn't even receive it from angels. And if you hear something contrary to this message from angels, don't trust him. He says, this is a message that I received about Jesus from Jesus himself. And Jesus is the one who met me on the road and has sent me to preach this good news. So we're going we're gonna to pick up the story where we left off from two weeks ago. And this is where uh, Saul's life becomes uh, quite a bit of an adventure. I myself enjoy an adventure, but not the kind of adventures that uh, Saul is about to embark on. The difference being that in Saul's adventures, uh, his life is threatened repeatedly uh, throughout uh, the adventures uh, that he goes on in following Jesus uh, through his life and ministry. So, but this is an adventure that for Saul, uh, it's full of adversity, it's full of uh, pushback, uh, there's some suffering along the way, but... In this particular story, in this next stage of Paul or Saul exploring his calling uh, with Jesus, this is the part of the story where he is able to refine his calling a little bit and better understand from a narrower scope what exactly Jesus has called him to. So that's what we're going to see in the story. So I'm going to tell you the story, and at the end of the story, I want to address your calling uh, something that is, is critical for us to understand towards the goal of living a life of purpose with Jesus. And uh, what I'm going to do is tell you the story like I've done, and then I'm going to extract from the story three pro tips for stepping into uh, the calling of God on your life. So here's the story. As we know, Saul met Jesus. Uh, he is blinded. He's in Damascus. He, Ananias prays for him, his sight is restored, and where we left off the story two weeks ago, Saul went right into the synagogues and began uh, defending uh, the, the divinity of Jesus using the Old Testament, the same Old Testament that he had used as a rationale for murdering the followers of Jesus, he is now using to defend the identity of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Jesus for salvation, for relationship with God and for eternal life. And it says in chapter 9 in Acts, it says that Saul was increasing in strength and he kept confounding the Jews by proving to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and after losing a bunch of these debates, the local Jewish leaders opted for a new method of debate, uh, murder. They decided, we're just going to kill this guy because otherwise more people are going to end up following this Jesus that he's preaching. Well, Saul's close friends found out about this. They said, well, we don't want Saul to get put to death. They, were, they had set a trap for him at the gate of the city with the intent of capturing him when he tried to leave Damascus. And so they took him to a home that was on the outer wall of the city, and at night they lowered him out of the window down to the ground on the outer wall of the city, and Saul made his way to Jerusalem. 
Now, once in Jerusalem, of course, Saul would have been enthusiastic to connect with the, the fathers of the faith, the founders of the faith, the apostles, the church leaders there in Jerusalem, which was, which was ground zero of the Christian explosion. And yet, when he showed up in the city of Jerusalem, he discovered that there was, well, he discovered that no one would meet with him. Uh, the believers there actually thought that this was a trap. And of course, they thought this was a trap because Saul was a homicidal maniac. He, was, he hunted people down in order to kill them who followed Jesus. And so when he shows up back in Jerusalem and says, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus now too. I want to meet with you guys. They said, I don't think so. I think something fishy is going on here. Well, there's another character that's introduced in the story that becomes important to the life and ministry uh, of Saul, and that's the character of Barnabas. Barnabas was a man of integrity, he was a man of wisdom, and he was a follower of Jesus. And it says that Barnabas intervened and he took Saul and introduced him to Peter, the apostle, and then also to James, the brother of Jesus. So they were able to interact and while in Jerusalem, once, once the, the believers were not fleeing from Saul every time he showed up and they had embraced him, he started to preach the good news in Jerusalem about Jesus in the synagogues. And the local Jewish leaders in Jerusalem concocted a plan to kill him. It's an interesting thing about evil is it's not very creative. They keep losing the argument, and they resort to violence. What do we need to do to, to get Saul to quit talking about Jesus? Let's put him to death. Well, once again, his friends intervened, the, the Christians there in Jerusalem. It says they, they took Saul and they escorted him to Caesarea. Caesarea is up north along the coast, and they took him that far, and then they sent him from Caesarea. They sent him to Tarsus. Saul is actually from Tarsus. That's where he was originally from. And so they sent him back home and they said, you need to get out of town for a little while until things settle down. The persecution was intensifying dramatically. There was a lot of animosity towards follower of Jesus. And so why don't you head to Tarsus and just hang out there? So Saul went home to Tarsus and then in chapter 11 of Acts, it says that uh, there were a bunch of new followers of Jesus that because of the intense persecution were also fleeing Jerusalem. And it says that they were sharing Jesus along the way as they went, but it also says that they were specifically targeting a Jewish audience. So they were finding uh, people who were of the same nationality as them and letting them know that the promise of the Old Testament, their sacred scriptures, had been fulfilled through Jesus. Well, a couple of them that were less informed decided that they were going to start sharing with other people besides the Jews. And so, in Antioch, uh, which is a city, so if Israel is here, and here's the Mediterranean, Caesarea is here, Tarsus is here, and then Antioch is over this way. <coughs> It says there's some men there that started inadvertently sharing the gospel with Gentiles and that the Gentiles believed. In fact, it says that many Gentiles believed in Jesus and word of their belief and their faith traveled back to Jerusalem. 
And so the church in Jerusalem heard about this, and they sent Barnabas. They said, hey, Barnabas, uh, you're a man of integrity. You're a man of wisdom. You're a leader. We want you to go up there and just see what's happening and uh, check in on it and also uh, offer whatever assistance you can provide to them as they are embracing the message of Jesus. So Barnabas went up, and it says that he strengthened and encouraged that new group of believers in Antioch. It says that that group of believers started to grow, and Barnabas realized that he needed some help. So Barnabas left Antioch, traveled back to Tarsus, and found Paul, or Saul. He found Saul and said, Saul, I need your help. I need you to come and assist me in, in teaching these new believers about Jesus. So Saul went with him. It says that they spent, Saul and Barnabas spent the next year in Antioch strengthening the believers there, teaching them the scriptures, uh, increasing their maturity as followers of Jesus. And then a prophet came down to Antioch, told them that there was going to be a famine in their homeland in Jerusalem. And so the believers there in Antioch took up an offering, and they sent it with Saul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. So they went back uh, to where again, where the church was kind of the ground zero of the church. They delivered this gift, this offering, and then they came back, uh, back up. <clears throat> Once they got back to Antioch, this is where our story actually uh, kind of takes a turn, and this is where things start to narrow for Saul. Once they got back to Antioch, the, the leaders of the church got together, and they prayed, and they said, God, what is, it that you're, what is it that you want us to do? Uh, we have been here. The church is growing. Uh, it's it's uh, succeeding. It's getting healthy. How would you have us move forward? And it says that they consulted through prayer, the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit encouraged them to send uh, Saul and Barnabas to Cyprus. Well, in the Mediterranean, again, if Israel's here and the Mediterranean's here, Cyprus is an island out in the middle of the Mediterranean, kind of at the end of the, or the head of the Mediterranean Sea. Cyprus is an island that's almost identical in size to Kodiak Island. It says that they laid hands on them, they prayed for them, and they sent them to Cyprus. The church in Antioch was actually launched by men from Cyprus, believers who had come from Cyprus. And so now Saul and Barnabas are going to go back to that island and travel that island sharing the good news about Jesus. So they land uh, on the, what would have been the eastern side of the island, and they make their way across the island preaching Jesus in synagogues. So even though this wasn't Israel, uh, Jewish communities had built synagogues, that is, uh, sort of religious training centers in these locales. So they, they landed in Paphos, which was at the other side of the island. They made their way across, uh, preaching Jesus as they went. And when they landed in Paphos, they met the governor of Cyprus, the proconsul. He was appointed by Rome as the one to, to keep order in this whole region, the region of the island of Cyprus. 
They met him along with a very interesting character. His name is Elimus. Elimus is a magician, but he's also a, a Jewish religious leader. Basically, he was a Jewish leader that had, for whatever reason, corrupted his faith enough that he could sort of sell himself as a bit of like a fortune teller, um, as a kind of like a witch doctor almost, who could, you know, on your behalf, if you took care of him and paid the right price, he could summon the God's favor on your behalf. Well, the Romans at that time had a special interest in the Jews for this reason. They were very spiritual people with a rich and long spiritual heritage. So here, this Roman governor, Sergius, has kind of like this sidekick, this Jewish witch doctor who is working on his behalf. Paul gets, or Saul gets an opportunity to uh, share the good news about Jesus. He gets an audience with the governor, with Sergius Paulus. And he begins to share with him from the Old Testament about how Jesus is the promised Messiah who was to come. And the governor started listening to him. But of course, Elimus, the magician, oddly enough, his, his given name was Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. Uh, Jesus along uh, with Joshua, was a common Jewish name. He, he didn't like this at all. He says, wait a minute, if, if they convince Sergius that their message is correct, then I could be in trouble because my message is a deception. And so he started to argue against them. This Jewish magician guy starts to argue against Saul and Barnabas as they're sharing the gospel with this Roman governor. Saul has enough of it. He's not going to have it. He's not going to let this guy who's a corrupt uh, leader, who's a, who's a corrupt Jew, stand in the way. In chapter 13, verse 10, Saul confronts him and he says, you are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? So this man who was professing to be a faith leader, uh, a man of wisdom and faith, had actually taken the ways of the Lord and had mangled them in his presentation. Well, Saul in that moment pronounces blindness on Elimus. He says, you will not be able to see he pronounces on him a physical manifestation of his spiritual reality. This man is spiritually blind and yet posing as a spiritual leader. It wasn't permanent, but he becomes temporarily blind. And of course, Sergius, the governor, is, is moved by this. He's, for lack of a better term, he's impressed by this. And it says that Sergius believed the message of Jesus. Sergius, the Roman governor, believed the message of Jesus. And then Luke, the writer of the story, tells us at this point that Saul began to go by the name Paul, which is his Roman name, because uh, Saul was also a citizen of Rome. 
And so from this point in the story, this is the transition. He has this encounter with this Roman governor, and he begins to go by his Roman name, the name Paul. So they leave there, and they hid back to the mainland, and they end up in Antioch, a different Antioch. They end up in Antioch in the province of Pisidia, and they head to the synagogue there, and this is where our story is going to culminate. They head to the synagogue there, they sit down, they listen to the teaching on the Sabbath day, the teaching is done, and the Jews turn to them and say, hey, you guys are new, do you have anything you want to share with us? They probably recognized that they were some kind of uh, faith leaders or spiritual leaders from back Jerusalem way, so they gave them an opportunity to share. And so Paul and Barnabas said, sure, we would love to share. And it says that Paul got up, he opened the Scriptures, and he showed them that the promises of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob how God through them would bless all nations, that the promise to David that uh, God would establish his throne forever, that all of those promises had been fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus, and that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, eternal life had been made available to them. So they get done laying this all out. It's the end of the day. It's time to go home. And it says that the local people there who were listening pleaded with them, begged them to return and finish teaching the next week. So they came back the next week, and when they came back the next week to pick up their sermon series, the entire city had turned out to hear them. And here we go again. The entire city turned out and it says that the Jewish leaders there became very jealous. Jealous because of the crowd size. And from a place of jealousy, they opposed their message. They stood up against them and said no, and they started to debate. In Acts 13, verse 46, and following, it says that Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, and they said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, the Jews. Since you repudiate it, and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. We are going to bring focus to our ministry, and we're going to go to those who do not have religious background like you have, who do not have the spiritual faith heritage that you have. For the, so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And this is my favorite part of the whole story. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. So here they are. The whole city has gathered, right, to hear this message. And the Jews, who were the, the religious ones, 
Of course, we know they were also the self-righteous ones. They're, they're enraged by, by all of these people who have shown up to hear this message that they couldn't convince to show up to hear their message. And so they start to contradict Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas say, well, then you stand condemned before God. We're going to redirect our attention, and we're going to preach this message to the Gentiles. And the Gentile audience that, that is present, it says they started rejoicing. Woohoo! We got our own missionary now. Well, this wasn't satisfactory for the Jewish leaders. The story tells us that the Jews incited devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, and they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the district. Isn't that fascinating? They, they incited the religious leaders, men and women, and instigated a persecution against these two men to get rid of them. It says they drove them out of the district, and then the story ends this way. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust of their feet in protest against them and went on to the next city. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So that's the story. That's our first adventure uh, with Saul. So I want to talk for a minute. I said I was going to give you three pro tips. I want to talk for a minute about your calling and then really quickly move through these. You've heard us say it at Church on the Rock many times. Every single believer is called by God to be a disciple maker. That is to form relationships of explicit and intentional influence towards Christ-likeness. Every believer is, is called to, to do what is the most basic function of all of life, and that is to reproduce life. It is not the calling of the church to be your subcontractors in that. We are called collectively to resource you individually as you walk into that calling. And that calling for you to make disciples has been reserved for you, for your joy and your eternal reward. And yet, of course, you know if you've taken any steps in that direction, uh, that's a challenging calling to walk into. There are really two reasons why people don't take those steps. One is they're afraid. Um, and the other is they don't have time. One is an issue of the heart, and then one is an issue of uh, my set of values, right? My priorities. I just haven't made it a priority in my life. I'm too, I got too much going on. The very thing that God has called me to that is of eternal consequence and of eternal value, I have not prioritized enough to make it a reality in my life. Or I'm just too insecure, I'm too fearful, I can't get myself to step in that direction. I want to encourage you right now in the midst of everything that's going on to consider your calling and to take some steps in that direction. Here's three pro tips from the story of Saul. Number one, 
ask for the Holy Spirit's direction. This is how this story begins. It says they're in Antioch at the beginning of the chapter. They're in Antioch, and it says that the Holy Spirit set aside Saul and Barnabas and said, I know where there's going to be a receptive audience. I know that there is a governor that wants to hear what you have to say. I know where there's a community of Gentiles that are longing to hear the truth. In fact, they'll come in droves to hear this message. I want you to go there. It's the Holy Spirit in Acts 8.29 that directs Philip to meet up with the Ethiopian eunuch who worked for the queen. It's the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10 that directs Peter to go up and meet Cornelius, the Gentile, and share the message of Jesus with him. It's the Holy Spirit that knew that there was a receptive audience waiting to hear and so it's the Holy Spirit that sends them in the right direction. The Holy Spirit always knows where that audience is that's wanting to hear. For me personally, it's often, uh, an, uh, I would say, uh, an unshakable sense that God has placed someone particularly on my mind or on my heart, a little nudging, uh, uh, an urging of the Holy Spirit to reach out to this person. Um, I've had times where I, I reached out and then made an investment and then felt a peace about, about uh, reducing that investment into that particular relationship and reinvesting in someone else. And then there's been other times where I felt this sense from the Lord uh, that I should continue making that investment, that I should go in this direction, pursue this person. If you're going to get on the, get into your calling as a disciple maker, ask the Holy Spirit to direct you in that. Who should you reach out to? Where is that receptive audience? Where is that person that wants to hear from you what you have to share? Number two, learn when to shake the dust off your feet. Verse 51 of that chapter, Acts 13. They shook the dust off their feet and left. This phrase is actually used a few times in the New Testament. In Acts 18, this is a little bit later on, in Corinth, Paul was opposed by the Jews, and it says that he shook out his garments and left. In all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus uses this expression when He sends out the 70. He says, I want you to go into these different communities, and if there's no one there who will be hospitable to you, who will receive you uh, and invite you in to share the good news of the kingdom of God, I want you to shake the dust off your feet. Well, that expression, shaking the dust off your feet, is what the religious people did to show their contempt for those who were unclean when they were traveling through Gentile areas. As they would travel through, they considered the dust that accumulated on their feet from traveling through this Gentile region to make them ceremonially unclean. And so as they left that community, they would, for their own self-righteous sake, uh, shake the dust off their feet of that place. It was a way of showing uh, condemnation. 
And, and Jesus and Paul actually say the one who rejects Jesus, that's the one who's condemned. No one hates the good news more than the self-righteous. No one opposes the good news more than the self-righteous. And the reality is that no one is more lost than the self-righteous. There is a time in our efforts to step into our calling of disciple-making that we need to shake the dust off our feet, that we need to realize that we need to move on and make an investment where there's a receptive audience, that time is too short, that the, the, the time frame of our lives is too short to not make investments into fertile soil. And that's why, number one, is to consult the Holy Spirit, because oftentimes it's the Holy Spirit that will prompt us in making that decision. I remember a few years ago uh, listening to uh, a gal, a friend of mine, expressing disappointment in disciple-making relationships. She was investing in three individuals who all were very resistant to the message. And as a result, she was becoming very uh, despondent, sort of defeated in her efforts to, to make an impact. And so I asked that question, do you think maybe it's time to shake the dust off your feet and ask the Holy Spirit where there's a receptive audience? So she spent some time in prayer and made that decision to find a receptive audience. And so she invited a couple new women who showed great interest in hearing from her about the good news how to walk with Jesus. And within a very short period of time, her whole demeanor and sense of confidence and inspiration in disciple-making had changed because she was seeing that impact, and the difference was she had a receptive audience. She understood that there's a time to shake the dust off your feet. So tip number one, ask for the Holy Spirit's direction. Tip number two, learn when to shake the dust off your feet. And then tip number three, hold on to your joy. That's how this story ends in chapter 13. They shook the dust off their feet in protest against them. They went up to Iconium, which is the next uh, city, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine if uh, in the middle of everything that's going on right now that we were just flat out driven from Homer, Alaska, like physically driven out of town because of our belief system? That's what happened, and the story concludes, and they were continually filled with joy. Tip number three, if you're going to be effective in disciple-making and representing the hope that we have in Jesus, you have to hold on to your joy. Joy that you carry, the joy that you carry as a disciple-maker is actually a gift from the Holy Spirit to the people that you're trying to re reach. My joy is a gift from God that I give to those that I'm trying to have an influence over. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and the Lord, and in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that provided you that joy. Romans 14.17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
1 Peter 4.13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Jesus, keep on rejoicing. Hold on to your joy. The Holy Spirit will provide you with joy and that joy in you as you pursue your calling as a disciple maker is actually a gift from God through you to the people that you're trying to reach. So, ask for the Holy Spirit's direction. Learn when to shake the dust off your feet. Move on to a receptive audience. Find someone who wants to hear. And number three, hold on to your joy. That's what Saul did. That's what his friends did. They held on to the joy in the midst of adversity in following Jesus. So let's pray. God, I do thank you for your calling on our lives. Uh, my prayer right now, even as we, as we jump back into this, uh, this series on the life of Saul, his dramatic conversion and his calling uh, as a missionary, um, my prayer is that each person who is a part of our church, who is part of Church on the Rock, that we would revisit again and remind ourselves of our calling, of our eternal calling right here and right now. Um, in the midst of many changes, in the midst of adversity, um, in the midst of uncertainty, God, again, that we would double down on the calling that you've placed on our lives to reproduce the life that we have from you into the life of others. I pray that we would be led by the Holy Spirit in that, that we would know uh, when to, to move on from unreceptive audience to a receptive audience, and that as we navigate that, even though I know that many times there's a sense of failure and defeat in those efforts, God, that you would be our source of joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.